Welcome to the UX Podcast, where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine. UX introduces a simple formula for personal and business growth based around one principle. We can't solve big, valuable problems alone. Starting with this principle, UX equips and empowers us to pour ourselves into people and systems, scale authentically, and create a life of exponential freedom and impact. And now, let's get started with the latest episode of the UX Podcast. Hey, what's up, rock stars? It's Matt Johnson. I've got a really interesting, really fun conversation for you today that I think is going to help your marketing because we're talking about storytelling. Our guest for today is Greg Stone, uh, who was introduced to me by another former guest on the show. And Greg is the author of a book called Branding with Powerful Stories. The subtitle is The Villains, Victims, and Heroes Model, which of course immediately jumped out to me. I'm a big fan of archetypes and the use of archetypes in marketing as a key factor in how we differentiate ourselves as coaches, consultants, and creatives. So I was very interested to talk to Greg and get his perspective on how these types of archetypes kind of play into the stories that we tell people about our business and how we can get better at storytelling in the context of our business. So I'll get into that in a second. A little background on Greg. Uh, graduated from Harvard, uh, got two master's degrees. He is an, a former Emmy-winning journalist and now uh, is the author, uh, you know, multi-time author, but also the founder of Stone Communications. And he works with uh, everybody from Ancestry.com, IBM, Lego, 3M, MIT, Timberland, uh, and um, has been a guest lecturer at Harvard Business School. I mean, the, the credentials for, for Greg is just, it, it's absolutely insane. It's a very, very privileged to have him on the show. And beyond that, just we had a really fun conversation about storytelling. We talked about the power of stats. We talked about storytelling technique. We talked about kind of the rhythm of how to mix feelings and facts and why we actually need both in a story. Otherwise, on one end will be super boring and on the other end will be melodramatic and neither one of those are good. So it's really a matter of balancing feelings and facts when we're telling a story and really understanding who the villain is, right? So, you know, we've, in, in, copywriting, if you're familiar with that world, you'll probably hear this concept more in terms of uh, the common enemy uh, because that in copywriting is probably used. There's more of an awareness of this concept. It's very unknown as far as I can tell outside of that arena. So if you are telling stories about your business and you're not really telling uh, people who the villain is and you're not really zeroing in on the problem and you're talking more about yourself and your solution to the problem, then we're missing the mark. Uh, essentially because we're not speaking to the customer or the, or the potential client in language that really hits home and, and means a lot to them. So we also talk about why radio is a more powerful medium than video. That was super interesting. How to tell stories in simple, more colorful language. And we really zero in a little bit on, on what good language means, right? How to be specific without being overly detailed. So where this fits into the big scheme of things is that we talked a little bit about kind of the clear and compelling idea. And I did a whole episode on that. And one of the ways that we, we communicate and convey that clear and compelling idea is the story that we tell people about our business. What, what is the problem that we solve? Why are we so passionate about solving it? How, why, why do we want to solve it in the way that we believe is best, that we should be radically different from what everybody else thinks, right? That is a story. It's a narrative. 
right? And the way that we tell that story affects whether people come out with the perception that we want to. And marketing is a, is a battle of perception. So the better that we can get at storytelling, the better we can get at communicating that clear and compelling idea, the more likely it is that we become known for that one thing. And that one thing generates demand for what we do. That is the point. That is where it ties into this whole world. So the better we get at storytelling, in the end, as you cascade it down, what it ends up doing is the better we are at storytelling, the better we are at creating demand for the service that we offer and the thing that we sell. So with that being said, I'm super excited for you to hear this conversation. Let's jump in with Greg Stone, the author of Branding with Powerful Stories. Well, Greg, officially welcome to the UX Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm super excited. And you have one of my favorite names. I have one of my best friends is Greg. Well, I have a great client named Greg. So this is going to be awesome. Uh, we had a great pre-conversation and you're a fellow musician, which I do want to dip into a little bit because of the effect of rhythm uh, on storytelling, which is really fascinating. So we'll get to that in a second. But tell people a little bit, just uh, the book, give people the, the big idea. And, and if they could, if they come away from the book, what's the, what's the one action that you'd love for them to take? Sure. Uh, the name of the book is Branding with Powerful Stories, the Villains, Victims, and Heroes Model. And if there is one central concept, it's this, that Alfred Hitchcock famously said that great villains make great movies. And the same is true with any stories. If you look at what kids like, fairy tales are scary. They deal with decidedly non-child appropriate subjects like, uh, you know, murder and cannibalism and that sort of thing. And kids love it because the danger is what causes the thrill. And the same is true in business stories, that too often corporate spokespeople and business people just want to talk about their products or services, but they don't want to talk about the problems that the customers face, which are in effect the villains that they're grappling with. And they look to business providers to provide solutions for those villains, to provide antidotes, to provide uh, the knights in shining, shining armor, as it were, that slay the villains for them. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and, and I would 100% agree. Number one, we're really bad at telling the story of our own business. Typically, yes. we focus on all the wrong things, which you gave some really good examples in the book that, that were very telling. And I and, and encouraged me to go back and look at how am I injecting some feeling into my stories of, of my own uh, when I get interviewed? So there, there's a lot of benefit on that. But just the idea that we don't talk about the problem enough, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, but there's a lot of people that don't agree with that. And they're perfectly fine focusing on, you know, products and benefits and thinking they really don't ever have to talk about the problem they solve. I don't know why that is. I don't know what you found in the corporate world. But it seems like there's a resistance there that I don't quite understand what, what's there. I think a lot of it, frankly, uh, stems from not bothering to figure out what the audience is about. Because if you think about it, stories are a form of kindness in the sense that they belong to the story. Once the words are spoken, they cease to be ours and they belong to the listener. And my favorite proposition mm -hmm. is about, too often people say, speak to the audience and certainly want to speak to them. But the most powerful stories speak about the audience. When you listen to a politician, well, actually, let's back up a second. I've done a fair amount of political consulting, and people vote for politicians for three reasons. Number one, what is he or she going to do for me? Number two, does he or she care about me? And number three, most importantly, does he or she understand me? When you listen to a politician or a business leader or a salesperson speak, 
And if he or she is hitting the center of your experience and talking about the things that you care about, the things that keep you awake at night, the things that you worry about, the things you love, then that resonates with you. And so it's really, it requires a lot of research to try to figure out what the audience is all about because it's not about you, it's not about your business, it's about the customer and his or her needs. It's a simple concept, but it's hard to put into practice when you're trying to communicate. Well, it's true, and I think it gets to the root of it, which is you have to think of others first, and that's always hard, uh, probably especially hard the more the ego is involved, and, and big corporations have big egos. There's a lot wrapped up in their perception of their own brand and how important it is in the market and how important it is to other people, which is unfortunately not much, especially now. Um, exactly. It's interesting, like, the, like relating how we tell our stories uh, in business to politics, I think is really good because you're right. Politicians focus, and they do this by design, they focus so much on the problem that they make you think they have the solution. We know they don't, mm -hmm. but, the, but they do encourage people. Like just them being able to articulate and identify with the problem creates the impression that, oh, they must have a solution. And exactly. same thing happens for us, but we, we spend most of our time talking about the solution that we think is awesome and not a lot of time talking about the problem. It ends up creating no, I guess we lose that emotional connection is kind of what you're saying. We should emulate the politicians in that sense, build the emotional connection first, and they're going to assume we have the solution. Then we can step into that gap and tell them about it if we're invited to. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize too that you need to brand with the heart because customers think that products have one. There's yeah. research that shows that we personify everything, even websites. I mean, you go on Amazon, and if something is not working, if you're not getting the information in the way you need it, you say to yourself, boy, Amazon is not being very cooperative. cooperative. <laughs> that's that's you right. Know, he or she like, is man, having I like a bad day. Jeff Bezos character up. Like, what is, what is this exactly. deal? I mean, you know it's not real, but yet right. you think it's real. And advertisers take care of this. They have the Marlboro Man. You know, yeah. you have uh, the world's most interesting man, the Jolly Green Giant. They love to personify products to give them a, a personality that goes above and beyond the confines of the, the goods and services. And people buy not just products, but bundles of psychological attributes, too. Charles Rebson famously said that, in the factory, we make perfume, but in the drugstore, we sell hope. I mean, why do people put cologne or perfume on? Because they hope that it's going to improve their social lives. Yeah. It's not just that you want to smell good. You want to smell good for a particular purpose, the car you drive, the clothes you wear. They're, they're, you're trying to achieve something beyond the benefits that are right in front of you. People talk about the benefit of the benefit. There's a, a famous uh, Harvard Business School professor by the name of Theodore Levitt mm. who said famously that people don't buy quarter-inch drill bits. They buy quarter-inch holes. Mm. That you have a quarter-inch drill bit to drill a quarter-inch hole in the wall so you can hang pictures of your loved ones on the wall. Yeah. So you have to look beyond what the immediate benefit is and think about the actual job that the, that the product is doing. Um, there's some research, another Harvard Business School professor named Clay Christensen came up with the jobs theory of marketing, that he did some research for an unnamed fast food chain about their, the sales of their milkshakes, and they had segmented it 
16 ways to Sunday. They knew who bought the milkshakes, how old they were, how much they spent, and so on. But he analyzed it from a different perspective. He tried to figure out why people were buying the milkshakes. And the reason is they were looking for something to do on the way to work. If you have a donut, it's messy and gets all over your steering wheel. Ditto, uh, you know, a bagel with cream cheese. And coffee is hot and it can spill on you and it's hard to sip. But a milkshake is in a straw. You don't get your hands dirty. You take a sip. You put it down. It keeps you occupied on your way to work. That's the job, quote unquote, that the milkshake was doing. So I think we need to think in those terms about what it is we're actually offering mm-hmm. and how the customer perceives it fundamentally. I love it. So, so for those of us that are kind of in the independent world, um, we may not have the marketing budget behind us to create the next Jolly Green Giant and then spend millions of advertising to, to burn that into the backs of the retinas of all of the people that uh, watch our commercials. So it seems to me that like the, the substitute for that is to make sure that we have a really, really good spreadable story. And there was, there was one line, and I don't know if I can find it or, or not real quick. I know I highlighted it for myself, but it was the idea that we, we, we end up mistakenly doing a lot of things in marketing and storytelling that are visual and not very verbal. And I, I haven't really heard that point of view, you know, hardly anywhere else, right? The, the things that we come up with have to be something that is that is verbal and it works for for spreading and sharing. And I'll try to find the the context, but uh, I think we we do way underestimate the idea that hey, if we're going to tell a story, it's understood verbally, it's understood and take it's taken in through the ears, and then that's also the only way that people can share it and spread it with other people. Like if we're going to tell yeah, a story think- about our business, like they have to be able to like spread it by word of mouth, and. Uh, and we, we do a lot of things that only make sense visually. Like I've had, I've had somebody give out a URL on, on one of my podcasts that was something like, like I guarantee you made sense when you looked at it, but then when you give it out verbally, it had a hyphen, like an X and a Z and like a dot biz and a something. Like it, the only way it made sense was if you looked at that and go, oh, that's short, but it only looks short. Verbally, it was super long and super confusing. And we do that all the time with like how we present our business. Exactly. I think that the idea really is that you need to stimulate the visual part of the person's brain. When you speak, all you have is your voice. Yeah. And so if you're telling a story, it's as if you're describing a movie to a blind person. And so that's why I always say that radio is the most powerful medium because it stimulates only your hearing, but it engages all of your senses. And the images that you conjure up to accompany a radio story are much more real to you than something which is put in front of you. That's why radio is not a lazy medium. It's actually an engaging medium, which calls for a lot of engagement. And if you think about it, what makes it work are the sensory details. If I'm telling you a story, I'm the narrator of the movie. I'm the director of the movie. I might also be the main character in the movie. So I need to tell you what's going on in the story that I'm describing. And if I do it correctly, I as the storyteller disappear and the narrative itself takes over. A great example of this would be uh, Edward R. Murrow, who was a famous uh, radio reporter from World War II. And there was a movie made about him fairly recently called Good Night and Good Luck. It's a decent movie, but, but he was a master at giving you the details that put you on the scene. For instance, Hmm. he had a broadcast that went something like this. He was in London, and again, this is radio, Mm -hmm. and he said, after the bombing stopped and the all clear was given, 
little boys were already starting a treasure hunt for bits of shrapnel. And a farmer was trying to get a, a mare, a horse that was quivering like a leaf back between the staves of the cart because he was a baker, it wasn't a farmer, it was a baker, excuse me, and he had bread to deliver. Mm -hmm. So those little things, those little details put you directly on the scene and they're worth a thousand generalities because you don't have to use the phrase the horrors of war because the horrors of war are depicted in that image of this poor her horse mm -hmm. that is scared out of its wits. And you don't have to yeah. use the phrase, you know, indomitable spirit, because that's evident, because once the bombing stops, okay, the boys start a treasure hunt for bits of shrapnel, the baker goes back to work, and life goes on. Yeah, I, I noticed this in uh, more, more in like info marketing circles than, than other places, but I, I do notice a tendency to focus a little bit too much on the quality of the words we're using and a lot less on the ideas that they are conveying and that's a great example so it's saying like you could come up with a phrase like indomitable spirit and that's a good phrase but you just like the describing what they're actually doing in plain language even though there was no nothing special about the individual words you're using that like him setting the scene in that way in plain language was actually much more effective than using a certain set of super awesome words Exactly. Now, my brother-in-law is named Tony Castro, and he used to be the uh, assistant DA for homicide in the Bronx. And now he's in private practice. And he used to say that uh, when he addressed a jury in a criminal case, he'd say, you think we have no eyewitnesses. But we do. We do have an eyewitness. The eyewitness is the dead man. Now, let's look at the world through his eyes. Let's try to figure out what he saw and mm -hmm. what his testimony would be and you look at the way he fell and which shows you the angle of the bullet and so on and so on and you build a whole scenario around the supposed visions and thoughts and feelings of somebody who's no longer with us and as tony jokes it's powerful because you can't cross-examine a dead guy <laughs> <laughs> but uh, any any good trial lawyer will tell you you need to put the jury inside the burning building and the only way to do that is to explain exactly what's happening. And I find that corporate spokespeople, when they tell a story, they tell it in, in a very general way. Uh, you know, you have a drum set behind you. And if I'm a salesman for, for one of the drums, I might say, well, I have a 14-year-old a was in here the other day and he bought a set of drums and he loved them. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a story that's like saying once upon a time yeah, you know what does the kid look like that's in a very you know, boring anecdote if anything yeah exactly you know did he have long hair short hair blue hair piercings what kind of music does he play you know maybe I have a 14 year old who plays swing music mm -hmm. so now the story is a little bit more interesting right because he's not interested in rock or or new wave or rap or anything he wants to play swing music and he listens to his grandfather's 78s and you know, he wants to drum along with those records and then it becomes a lot more interesting and, mm -hmm. and you can talk about his experience with, with the drums, which is, but most corporate spokespeople don't go far enough. I sold this, yeah. the drum set to a, to a 14 year old boy and he left with a smile on his face. Yeah. Or oh, worse, okay. they're, or worse, they immediately start talking about how many plies are in the wood of the drums they're trying to sell you, which is, which is even worse. Um, and that's exactly. what most of us would do like, Hey, this is seven ply birch. Like, Great. What the hell does that mean? Exactly. What does it sound like? Yes. 
Yeah. What does it do for me? Like, is it going to make me project? Does it make me stand out in the crowd on the band? Does it help me project past the wall of martial amps that are on either side of me? Does it make me look better to the females that are in the crowd? Like, yeah, you have to uh, position it in such a way that it, uh, that it deals with what we care about. Not that I care about any of those things. Of course, I naturally I, only care about the sound of the drum. Uh, understood. But, Your secrets are safe with me. Thank you. And, uh, and, our, and our listeners. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I want to talk about uh, epic stories for uh, here in a second, but let's just go a little bit deeper on the rhythm part. Uh, the whole, the idea of mixing and interspersing like feelings and facts together. I want to recap that a little bit and convey that to the audience. Yeah, there's a, there's a great book about this. And uh, it, the idea is that you want to mix facts and feelings in your stories because there's, there's a rhythm and there's no, there's not necessarily a set pattern, but let me just try something. I mean, I happen to be sitting in a hotel room. So if I say, if I tell the story and say, I walked up to do this podcast and I placed my laptop on the table and made sure that my earphones are properly placed and that the voice quality is, is where it should be. And I looked at my watch to make sure that I was on time. Those are all facts and that's boring. Mm -hmm. But if I tell you how I feel, what's going through my mind at the time, that's much better. So you yeah. might say, uh, you know, so-and-so walked into his office and turned on his computer and started reading his email. And those are all facts. And then he realized that his wife had been in a terrible accident and he collapsed at his desk. Then you, then now the story becomes more interesting. Yeah. So you have to mix facts and feelings, particularly in business. Give us a couple of facts about the product or the service then tell us how the customer reacts. And yeah. then tell us how you react. A lot of times people are reluctant to talk about their own impressions of the product, what excites them about the product or service they're offering, how they use it, what gets them out of bed in the morning. Most people don't work just for the paycheck. Yes, there are some who do, but it's more than money that motivates us, I think. And so you need to talk about whatever that something is that is not financial and customers respond to that. I like it when I help people with my product because I feel I'm making a contribution to the world, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, and there was something that I came across, it was a bit of information I came across, and I wish I could peg down where I came across it, but it was something to the, to the effect of this. The average time that it takes to go from one emotional switch to another on, on daytime television programs is, is absurdly low. I mean, something sub 30 seconds. So in other words, every 30 seconds, there's some sort of emotional switch going on. Anger to something you know, some, like the, the emotions are changing. Uh, and I think we wildly underestimate just how much people expect that in stories. And when they don't get it, they tune out fast. Uh, and I see this on podcasts a lot when we try to share our story of our product or our business. Yeah, I think that uh, the ultimate example of stories that are too much laden with too much feeling mm -hmm. is soap operas because mm -hmm. the dialogue is, as they say in Hollywood, on the nose. Mm -hmm. I love you, but I hate you. You excite me, but you disturb me. I have the greatest time when I'm with you. And also, I can't wait to leave and go back to my cubicle. I mean, it, all statements of feeling without us understanding what the factual basis of it is. Mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot had a theory uh, called the objective correlative, which is a fancy way of saying that if you want to produce a feeling in the reader, in his case, he was a poet, of course, mm -hmm. you need to set up 
uh, a group of stimuli that give rise to that feeling. If you want to show that some that one character in a story is in love with another, you need to give us the circumstances that give rise to that. Why are these two people in love? What is it that they have in common? What kind of experiences do they have? If you just say John fell in love with Jane and they had one blissful date after another and just stared into one another's eyes and whispered sweet nothings into their ears all day, that's not a story. That's a Hallmark card. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and you don't, you don't read Hallmark cards for the narrative. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. So it's as always, there's a balance between the two. And we're going for kind of a rhythm of, you know, mixing feelings and facts. So you, so people need the facts to understand the context. Without that, you get melodrama. But if you, if you leave out the feeling, and especially if you leave out the idea of villains, who are the heroes in the story, if you leave that part out, you end up not evoking any emotion and people tune out and they don't care about what you have to say. Absolutely. And the other thing too that people do not do is I like to think of messaging as an archipelago of islands that on each island you have the message itself and then you have some proof points, preferably statistical, and then some anecdotes. An example of this, if I could just read something about the, the power of, of statistics, I read um, a biography of da Vinci recently and here's a quote from the book about what the kinds of things that da Vinci would do in his spare time. He filled the opening pages of one of his notebooks with 169 attempts to square a circle. In eight pages, he recorded 730 findings about the flow of water. In another notebook, he listed 67 words that describe different types of moving water. He measured every segment of the human body, calculated their proportional relationships, and then did the same for a horse. And now we have a general statement. He drilled down for the pure joy of geeking out. Yeah. So these numbers give you a sense of how a obsessive da Vinci was, how smart he was, and the incredible energy that he had. Imagine you know, 730 observations about the flow of water. I couldn't think of a dozen. Yeah. Or, you know, he 169 attempts to square a circle. The idea is, you know, how do you take, I, uh, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure exactly what squaring a circle meant. I, I know, I was wondering the same thing. Yeah, it's, uh, I learned this from the book, that you have the circumference of the circle, right? And how do you turn that into a square? Like, what's the mathematical formula that allows you uh, take the to same turn line. a circle? Yeah, same line with the same circumference. Yeah, and then it's, just reshape it into a reshape it into a square which sounds ridiculously easy but it's but it's also really complex and you know this is the kind of stuff that that he was doing so if you if you say da vinci was inventive da vinci was creative da vinci was obsessive da vinci was a genius those statements don't give you the same impression as as all the all the numbers that i that i narrated and and people forget yeah. about the power of statistics in marketing Oh yeah, total. Well, we forget about the power of specifics in in general in in marketing. Um, you know, cho choosing specific words, which you talked about in the book. You know, the more the more specific you can get on the language uh, helps. Um, you know, statistics is a form of specificity. And yeah, we 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 end up reaching for a lot of. And I love this point that you made. Um, I've, I, you're again, this is one of the you're one of the only people I've heard articulate it this way, is that we use a lot of adjectives and adverbs, and not a lot of verbs. <laughs> and definitely exactly. not a lot of passive voice verbs. We do a lot of hedging and a lot of describing in weird flowery ways and not a lot of just saying what we mean.
Well, you know, Winston Churchill, who was an amazing example to emulate, uh, JFK, by the way, said that Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and put it into battle in World War II. But he said that the passive voice is exculpatory, meaning that it's trying to absolve you from guilt. <laughs> you know, if you say the, the budget was cut, that's, you know, okay, the budget was cut. But it's another thing to say, I just cut the budget. Yeah. I just cut your marketing budget. Yep. That's, whoa, you know, that sounds really harsh because I, as the manager, decided, okay, enough is enough. But if I say, well, the budget was cut yesterday, then it lets me off the hook. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of vague and it doesn't, it doesn't have any focus. And we need to be as precise as we possibly can. There's a story that I quote in the book that uh, Degas, the painter, tried his hand at poetry and uh, Mallarmé, who is a famous uh, French poet, was reading Degas's poetry and said, you know, this is terrible. And Degas said, well, I have, I have a lot of great ideas. And Mallarmé said, you know, my dear friend, poems are not made of ideas, but of words. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you can say, I have great ideas for a drum solo, you, yeah. you personally. And that's, that's terrific, you know, if you have this drum solo in your mind. But if you can't make it happen with the sticks on the skins, it, it doesn't do anybody any good that because it's the sound true. that matters, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the rat-tat-tat, so. And that is true. That. And, uh, and, and, yeah, uh, it comes back to the, the kindness, the consideration of others, right? How we articulate, how specific we are really comes down to how much we're paying attention to the other person who's on the receiving end and giving them what they need in the form that they need, which I love that focus on others. You know, my mom who passed away a couple of years ago is a very smart woman, um, not educated, but very smart. And she saw Harry Truman speak uh, in the late forties in New Jersey where I grew up. And uh, everybody was saying that Truman was going to lose. You know, the, the Chicago Tribune held up a headline saying that Dewey had won, and which Truman held up in triumph on Election Day. But she saw him speak at some point in the campaign, and he talked about the price of pork. You know, the price of pork is too high in the supermarkets. <laughs> and you say, well, that's a ridiculous thing to talk about. But it mm -hmm. resonated with my mom at that time because she and my dad were just starting out and they didn't have a lot of money. And it was the kind of thing that she was noticing. You know, boy, you go to the supermarket and you want to buy pork to bring home and boy, the prices have gone up. And it wasn't just that that got her attention. She was much smarter than that. But the fact that he understood right her daily life and the daily lives of the, of the constituents. You know, you have to be able in politics and in business leadership is, is showing people that you comprehend them emotionally and intellectually. And there's research that shows that people respond much more to transcendent purpose than transactional purpose. You know, if yeah, you want to epic stories, right? Exactly. But if you want to show people that if you want to motivate people, you can't motivate people by saying, we need to increase sales by 9%. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. But if you say, look, our products are really helping people and we want to do more of that because the more we help our customers, the more we'll be able to sell. And Epic Stories, you know, that, that's something I talk about in the book. It's, it's based on research that was done with uh, CEO interviews. And the most common type of story that CEOs told in the pages of the Harvard Business Review was an epic story. 
which is a story which involves heroes and villains and grand challenges and beauty and vision and that sort of thing. I mean, an example, I have an example here. The uh, CEO of Swatch said, and, and I'm quoting, he said, how do we launch Swatch in Germany? Did we saturate the airwaves with paid advertisements? No, anyone can do that. We built a giant Swatch. It was 500 feet high weighed 13 tons and actually worked. We <laughs> suspended it outside the tallest skyscraper in Frankfurt, the headquarters of a bank. And they did the same thing in, in Tokyo. And similar, similar stunt in Tokyo. And this is my favorite part of the story. He says, this is a, that's the factual part, which in itself is epic. And here's the emotional part. He said, Do we, did we act arrogantly in Japan? Of course not. And remember, Swatch is a Swiss company. He said, the Japanese are sympathetic to us. We're nice people from a small country. We have nice mountains and clear water. They like us and our products, and we like them. So this is a company that sells watches, and you're talking about the, you know, the emotional appeal of one yeah. small country with clean, beautiful mountains and clean water to another. That's not the way most people usually talk or think. And it, it resonates deeply. It's, it's colorful. Oh, and by the way, they hung a 500 foot watch up, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the Ginza and uh, off a bank in Frankfurt. So right. it wasn't just words and passion. It was also a big statement, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, but bringing it back to the emotional part is like, it's the combination that has the impact. It's not any, either of those elements in, in isolation. Okay. Let's take a quick step back. How do people get the book and how do they connect with you? And then I got one final question. Sure. Uh, again, the name of the book is Branding with Powerful Stories. It's the villains, victims, and heroes model. It's available on Amazon. And my name again is Greg Stone. My, my website is gregstone.com, G-R-E-G-S-T-O-N-E.com. I'd love to hear from anybody with questions or thoughts and uh, keep the dialogue going. That's right. All right. So, uh, so we call the podcast UX because it's about X factors, meaning your internal kind of unique abilities that then contribute and you can build a business around that's profitable and impactful and gives you a lot of freedom and all that fun stuff. So when you look back on, on your career and, and the skill sets that give you the ability to write a book like this, go out and speak on it, build, you know, coaching, consulting around it and, and so forth. What, what do you think are just those key two or three skill sets internally that give you the, that you kind of leveraged and maximized to create the book and, and to create, you know, kind of a consulting speaking practice around it? Uh, that's a great question. And I would say the way I describe what I do is I help businesses and scientists and leaders explain what they do in simple and hopefully colorful language to their various audiences, whether the audiences are internal whether they're direct reports, whether it's the board, whether it's customers fundamentally, or the media. And I think that people need to, to think of stories as units of information. You know, we all know the term meme, which is something, a theme, a tidbit, a piece of information repeated on the internet. The same is true in corporations. The stories become narratives, and together, Collectively, they form the DNA of the culture. And if you don't pay attention to what those messages are, then the dullest things are going to take over. 
Mm. You know, what's our bank yeah. about? The good our gets bank driven out by the about, bad. Exactly. Our bank is about uh, minimizing the amount of time that customers have to spend in line when they come in to speak to a teller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, oh, I, okay. I wish banks thought about that. It took them a while to even get around <laughs> to that. But yeah, exactly. that gets but that, super dry. It's the most dry possible way of even talking about a benefit to their customers. Exactly. How about, you know, eliminating the confusion of money or helping people save for retirement or mm-hmm. making it a joy to walk into the room because you know when you come into our bank that we understand you. It's sort mm-hmm. of like the cheers bar where everybody knows your name. Something that's emotional, something that is going to really grip people beyond the obvious, something that's not just entirely fact-laden, but, uh, but also emotionally laden too. And the fact is that stories are 22 times as memorable as facts. They, they tend to cause a cascade of dopamine and also oxytocin, not oxycontin, the bad stuff, but oxytocin, which is the hug hormone, so-called the one that uh, creates good feelings in the, in the mind of the listener. And there's also this phenomenon called neurocoupling, that when a story is told well, they've done studies with, they've put a listener and speaker inside MRI machines, and the brains are responding in the same way. It's as if the listener and the speaker's brain are two hemispheres in one mind. And it's a very mm-hmm. powerful connection that we all have to learn how to exploit and use. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can say from personal experience, podcasting taps into that. In fact, like there, there's guys, me and my, myself included that refer to it as the podcast high. And that's exactly what it is. You're sharing a storytelling experience, whether it's an interview or a conversation or whatever, but it's very much that experience and you get done sharing it. And you're like, wow, like I, I really enjoyed that. Like I really enjoyed this conversation and there's a bond that takes place. Uh, in that process of like helping somebody else tell their story, which is really interesting. I think that's why podcasting works so well. Um, but it's not, but that's just a subset of the fact that storytelling works like that and affects our brains like that. Absolutely. Love it. Well, this is a great book. Everybody should go get it. And uh, yeah, so I, that's what I have to say about that. But uh, Greg, this has been fantastic. I really, really appreciate your time. And I think people got a ton of value out of it. Thank you very much, Matt. And keep drumming. I <laughs> will. <laughs> Now, I believe that clarity releases energy. So I hope that this episode creates clarity for you by laying out a path forward in your business. Now, if you're interested in starting a podcast like this to help you break into a new industry or to establish yourself as an authority in a niche market, let's talk. We have a complete done for you podcasting service. That is my agency that I'm building and growing. And I'd love to talk to you about what we can potentially do for you. You can learn more at PursuingResults.com to get a sense of what our service is all about. And if you're ready, if you're really seriously thinking about starting a podcast, I'm happy to brainstorm your ideas and talk about the positioning of your podcast within the market, something that you can take away whether we end up working together or not. So you can grab a time on my calendar for a podcast brainstorm call at bookjohnson.com. That is bookjohnson.com. I just want to thank you again for listening to the show, for leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes and more importantly, for investing your time, your energy, your attention into the show. It really means the world to me that you would do that. So again, this is the UX podcast where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine, and we'll see you on the next episode.